Well, hi again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It is a pleasure to be the host of the Acton Podcast and to bring you interviews and information from the Acton Institute uh, on a pretty regular basis. Glad to have you along, and, and we really do appreciate all of our listeners and hope you'll uh, send the links around uh, if you hear a podcast that is of particular interest to you and maybe you know somebody else who'd like to hear it, might benefit from it. Hey, send the link around and uh, let's uh, let's spread the word of acting around as far as we can, okay? Well, we've got uh, a great podcast lined up for you today. Uh, a guest that I actually hoped to have on Radio Free Acton earlier this year when he was in the Acton building to speak as part of our uh, winter and spring Acton lecture series, but... Uh, tightness of his schedule did not allow it and we just never reconnected but he's here today as we're recording uh, this podcast and i just had an opportunity to sit down and talk with arthur c brooks he is the president of the american enterprise institute uh, a really great guy uh, with a lot of really good things to say to folks interested in advancing ideas of liberty and uh, conservatism really uh, in america and and frankly anywhere uh, we'll talk with Arthur Brooks in just a minute, that interview uh, coming up. But first of all, I want to highlight a couple of events that are coming up here at the Acton Institute in our Mark Murray Auditorium, which we are so grateful to have. Fantastic facility. Um, but we're, we're, keeping, we're, we're, we're using it. We're keeping busy here at Acton. And uh, we've got a packed, jam-packed events calendar for the fall again, just like we did in the spring. So it looks like the program staff is trying to wear everybody out again. But it's worth it. There's a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, if you're a member of the clergy, if you're a pastor, mark your calendars, October 15th, uh, right here at the Acton Building from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. We are holding a uh, pastor appreciation breakfast and lecture. It's our third annual event of this type. Uh, we have brought in uh, our guest speaker for the day, Reverend Dr. Wayne Schmidt of the Wesley Seminary. Uh, he's going to be delivering a message, and we're going to have a continental breakfast for everybody who comes. Uh, everybody, uh, all the pastors who are attending are going to receive a free act and institute resource bag. We got books, DVDs, some ministry tools in there, and it's just a great opportunity to fellowship with, uh, with fellow clergymen and, uh, other people who are, who know the, the great joys and also the great struggles of being a pastor. We know that it's a rewarding job, but it can be very difficult and we want to take some time to, uh, affirm and to, uh, reinforce our, our clergy here uh, locally in Grand Rapids. So uh, please do put it on your calendar, October 15th, if you're a member of the clergy. It's a free event, and we'd love to see you and uh, give you some resources and just uh, provide you with a nice breakfast, too. Uh, coming up as well, if you uh, have been following the podcast at all, you know that this is our 25th anniversary year here at the Acton Institute, and uh, we are holding, uh, on October 21st, in downtown Grand Rapids, our 25th annual dinner. It's going to be a great night. Uh, we've actually moved it from the normal locations that we've usually held it to a, a larger facility so that we can accommodate more people uh, and, and just have a great big celebration of 25 great years here at the Acton Institute. It will be held at the DeVos Place Steelcase Ballroom. Uh, featured speaker of the night, the keynote will be delivered by Reverend Robert A. Sirico, who is, of course, the president and one of the co-founders of the Acton Institute. And we are also really, really pleased to have with us this year uh, the uh, 2015 Faith and Freedom Award honoree, uh, Diet Iman, uh, a Dutch resistance member, really a, a genuine hero of World War II, 
Uh, she has uh, been a friend of Acton for for some years now. Uh, spoken at a number a number of times at Acton University, and it's just a real privilege to have Deet come and join us for dinner uh, on October twenty first. We're really looking forward to it. Hope you can come. Uh, registration info is available on acton.org slash events, our events page. And uh, we really hope to see you there at our annual dinner. A couple of Acton Lecture Series events that are coming up that you want to uh, make note of as well. October 29th, right here in the Mark Murray Auditorium at the Acton Institute, Jay Nordlinger of National Review will be coming to talk about his latest book, which is called Children of Monsters. Uh, and it is a an inquiry into the lives of the sons and daughters of dictators. Now, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this lecture, and, and hopefully I, I want to get Jay on a podcast as well, because it sounds fascinating. That's October 29th, and then following up uh, that one, November 5th, uh, pretty quickly afterwards, actually, uh, Dr. Bradley Berzer of Hillsdale University will be uh, delivering a lecture on the topic of Russell Kirk. And uh, he should be a good guy to talk about him because he does hold the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in History at Hillsdale College, a great institution right here in Michigan as well. Again, big full events calendar here at the Acton Institute. Please do check out our website, acton.org slash events, for all the information and uh, to register for any of our upcoming events here at the Acton Institute. Well, I am pleased to be joined today in the Acton Studios, very pleased to be joined uh, by a gentleman who is here for his second trip to the Acton Building this year, uh, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Dr. Arthur Brooks is with me. Uh, first of all, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be at Acton, always. Oh, yeah, and we, we love having you here, and you, uh, as we record this, you've just finished delivering a, a, a really great uh, Acton Lecture Series speech. Uh, on the topic, uh, you, you, you took the title of your speech from the, the title of your latest book, which is called The Conservative Heart, uh, subtitled How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. And uh, who, could, uh, who could disagree with that? That sounds like a great plan. Not a bad plan, although some people would uh, dispute whether or not there is, in fact, a conservative heart. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. And, and, and that's, I guess that's a, a great lead into the first question. There is a stereotype that's long held in American politics that conservatives are um, mean, stingy, uh, too tied up in facts and analysis. And, and on the other side of the aisle, you have the, you have the liberals who are big hearted and who care about the poor and, and only want to help people. Uh, but in practice, is that how it's actually worked out? It, it is not how it's worked out. In point of fact, uh, you find that the, the liberal policies that came out of the Great Society, notwithstanding the fact that they were designed to do good things for poor people, didn't help them very much. We were at about 15% uh, poverty when it when the when the policies were enacted in the mid 1960s were at 14.7 percent today after spending about 20 trillion dollars on my dad now that's a good return on investment that's uh, yeah i mean any ceo in america for that kind of performance would be fired 500 times over but of course there's no accountability when it comes to it in in government as long as your intentions are pure and good now i you know i've heard my whole life that that conservatives are stingy that conservatives don't love poor people i, I heard this growing up and you know and growing up in seattle all the time and I guess I believed it uh, simply because of the way the conservatives talk. 
conservatives talk as if they really didn't care very much about poor people frequently, or at least they don't express their heart for the poor nearly enough. They talk too much about material things. They talk about GDP growth. They talk about fighting against things they don't like from government to bureaucracy to spending. And this doesn't, uh, for people who are unconvinced, perhaps persuadable, but unconvinced, this, this just basically, it, uh, it reinforces the ideas that are put into currency by the liberals. And conservatives are responsible for turning these ideas around, for coming up with a better way of arguing, and in fact, a better way of putting policy together, implementing policy for the good of the poor. Yeah, we, we uh, you talk about finding ways to communicate our message that's positive rather than negative, and uh, can't I, I can't say how much I, I agree with you there. I come a, I come from a background of working in politics myself. I, my first job out of college was working in the Michigan legislature, so I worked as a legislative assistant. I know the ins and outs of politics, uh, but one of the things that I've noticed in, in in this is true of myself. I'm I'm spe- when I speak of conservatives, I'm speaking of myself here uh, that. We tend to focus oftentimes on politics. We focus a lot on the presidential election, who's running for Congress. Oh, what did the Supreme Court do now? And it, it, it sort of drags you down if you're constantly looking at that. But there's a problem with that that I see, and I wonder if you could run with this a little bit, that when we focus so much on politics and government, we're sort of seeding the game a little bit in that we're, we're kind of saying, yeah, the government is a prime mover and shaker in building our culture and, and, and making a good society. Where really what we ought to be doing is, is focusing our attention on the institutions of society that help to build a good society uh, so that the government has good people to run that society. Things like churches and, mm-hmm. and social clubs. And um, are, are, we, are we focused too much on politics well, uh, people who are involved in politics do necessarily talk an awful lot about politics. The conservatives that I know who talk about government all the time are people who are kind of involved in the government. You know, I know a lot of very conservative Capitol Hill staffers, and they're talking about what's going on on Capitol Hill. The good news is that most people who are conservative or center-right in the United States have nothing to do with government. They don't live anywhere near Washington, D.C. They're just going to choir practices and soccer games and work and putting one foot in front of the other every day, and they they don't really think that much about politics. Now, the, 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 the real problem is that politics, as they say, it ain't beanbag. It is, uh, it's a hard, it's a very tough business. And when you have one side on the, on the, uh, of the, you know, the political ledger that's really all about the government doing things for people and the other side that's intensely private, which is to say ordinary conservatives, one side's going to be better at politics than the other side. I and mean, we get guys like you who come out of college and they're really, really super into it. Fantastic. You know how to play the game. I mean, you, and, and, and in truth, we need politics and we need government. But we also need a strong sense of how to play this game, uh, in, 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 and it's a playing field that doesn't, doesn't uh, favor us very well. And that actually explains some of the reason that uh, the left has pulled one over on the American public for so long. Uh, that's, that's very true. And, and one of the things conservatives have been bad at for a very long time, I think, is telling stories. Uh, it, it, and we, we all know that uh, it's, it's, it's much easier to capture the attention and the imagination of a person uh, via a, a really good heartwarming or heartrending story than it is to give them a presentation with a PowerPoint that contains 14 different charts and, uh, and lists of facts. Um, what do conservatives need to do to, to, to do that? Well, part of it is part of the reason that liberals have a, an advantage when we're telling when they're telling stories is because they actually don't have the data that back up their arguments. And since we have data that back up our arguments, we tend to use it. But data are cold. They're, they're large groups of people. They're samples. 
of the population. And, you know, what happens is, and you know, you basically see this, you listen to National Public Radio, and National Public Radio says a new study comes out that shows that, you know, this XYZ government policy is actually bad for people. But we talked to one guy in Iowa, and it turns out he disagrees, as if, you know, one story of one person uh, is is more valid than a, than social science research or literature that, that suggests otherwise. Okay, so we're we're, we're, we're playing a game in which the other side has to rely on stories because that's all they've got. But we have to take a lesson from this as well. Um, a lot of the work that I do in the conservative heart that we're talking about here today actually is telling the stories of people who have lived a lot of the principles that we're talking about. <clears throat> These are uh, people who've been, for example, I spend a lot of time in a, in a place in New York City called the Doe Fund. It's a a homeless shelter that specializes in guys who've been incarcerated. So it's it's not just people who are clearly unloved in society. It's people that are considered to be unlovable. Men, I mean, people are unsympathetic to men. Men who have substance abused, who've gone to prison, uh, who are now are unemployed and homeless. I mean, it's just like a quintuple whammy. It's terrible. And and it, it talks about how these guys can put their lives together, too. And I tell stories of people who've done it. I talk about this guy who'd been in prison for 22 years. And he gets out. He'd never had a job. He never had a car. He never had a girlfriend. He never had an apartment. He had to learn everything at the age of 40 for the first time. Yeah. And, and you know, I asked him. He was working at a relatively menial job as in an exterminator agency. And I said, how, you know, his name is Richard. So Richard, are you happy? <laughs> and this is the story that brings home all of the data that we try to talk about as conservatives. He, he shows me an email. It's his first iPhone ever, which is not the source of his happiness. It's certainly convenient, but that wasn't it. He shows me an email from his boss and it says, <clears throat> you know, emergency bed bug job, East 65th Street. I need you now. I said, so what? He said, read it again. It says here, I need you now. This is the first time in my life anybody has said that to me. So of course I'm happy. Look, that anecdote, it brings home the truth that we all have written on our hearts. You need somebody to say, I need you now. And only a society in which we have strong civil institutions, where we have abundant work, where we have a sense of opportunity, where we have a true concept of social justice which means building people up and seeing them as assets, as individuals, which is a profoundly conservative value, that's when people will say, I need you now to everyone. And that story brings home the truth. We have to be better at telling stories that are based on empirical truths with real data. And when we do that, then we've got all the power in our hands to be a force for good. Absolutely. You talked in, in your lecture about the four words that sum up how to be happy. You said faith, family, community, and work. Correct. Uh, those are all things that have long, as, as long as I've known of conservatism, as long as I've known of, uh, it, these are things that I was raised with um, in, in sort of a, a stewed, sort of steeped in my entire life. Um, and they're great things. Uh, they, all of these things have, have great value to anyone who engages in any of them, family, faith, uh, community, and work. Uh, conservatives have a real amazing foundation, a real amazing uh, collection of stories that are out there. Right. We just need to find them and tell them. Absolutely. We and and we need to remember that that the the unit of analysis in human life is not, you know, n equals 30,000. It's it's n equals 1. The whole world is each individual. And we have a tendency to forget that. I mean, people tend to forget that. And the irony is that the, the liberal philosophy fundamentally is that <clears throat> Communities are the lump and mass that people aren't 
so individual that that people are kind of interchangeable in their way, which is why big government policies, they'll, they'll lump people into large groups. The conservative philosophy centers on the idea of the primacy and dignity of each individual. So it is a tremendous irony that we don't tell the stories of individual people nearly enough. You know, we believe that every single person is a sanctified individual made as, as one person in the image of God, and that we can turn the whole world by remembering that we are that person. I mean, this is the American conservative concept is not to make common cause with the poor. It's to remember that we are the poor. That's where we came from, man. We are every single person listening to us is just one or two or five generations uh, removed from being pure riffraff with one direction to go but up. And if we remember that and tell the stories of the people that are struggling to do that, then suddenly the conservative movement becomes more human, it becomes more positive and aspirational, and that's when it starts to win. And it's it's actually a valuable thing to remember just in your daily life, too. I, after your lecture, I was able to take a little break for lunch, ran down to Subway. And as I'm walking in there, i I, I was thinking about what you said and thought, you know what? I used to do this. This used to be me. I used to work in a little bakery. I was the janitor. And people would come in and I, I developed relationships with customers and did all that stuff. And really, I was a valuable part of a little organization. I was I was a friend to a number of people in the community. And, and I, through my work, was able to bless people in some way. And now I'm going and somebody's making a sandwich for me. Yeah, It doesn't seem like much, but when you think about it, how nice is it for someone to make you a sandwich? And how how should you then treat that person? You know, it's it's just a great principle to keep in the forefront of your mind. For sure. And we remember that that we aren't different. I mean, <laughs> you went from mopping the floor to Radio Free Acton. <laughs> it's the American success story, man. No, it's It, it a, turns out there's a little bit there's a few more rungs on the ladder above Radio Free Acton, I think. Well, I think. well, we'll wait and see, won't we'll we, see. my friend? Yes, yeah, we will. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, but but what the key thing for us to remember, um, you know, the most offensive thing that people say in America today is to talk about dead-end jobs. There's no such thing as a dead-end job. I've heard the vice president of the United States, who wants to be the president, talking about dead-end jobs. It's, it's terrible. But I've heard conservatives say that, too. It's not right. I mean, as conservatives, we need to remember that work is work, that honest work is a sanctified and a blessed thing. And it's every bit as morally uh, valid to be working as a hedge fund manager as it is to be, I don't know, trimming hedges. That work is work, and we have to bless it all, and we have to be thankful for every bit of it. Let's talk a, a little bit about your work. You're the head of the American Enterprise Institute, which That's is right. a long-standing organization mm -hmm. uh, in the in the conservative and liberty-oriented uh, movement. Talk a little bit about what you're doing at AEI right now. AEI is a, a think tank in Washington, D.C., started in 1938. And it was started in the teeth of the Great Depression, uh, nine years in, when the economic growth rate was still minus 4%. I mean, it's just crazy to think about those those numbers today because we don't see depressions like that, at least not for a while. <laughs> and uh, in, in 1938, when AEI was founded, the founders of our organization, which were members of the business community, basically went to all of the economists in the great universities and asked, what do we need to do to get out of the Great Depression? And the answer was scientific socialism. That's just what people thought. And our, our, our founders rejected that and said, no, no, no. Uh, I'm sorry. If all of the greatest intellectuals are talking about scientific socialism, whereas the truth 
that we've experienced as, as members of the business community is to push more free enterprise, not less, into the population that we need to start our own academic organization that does that. AEI is not an advocacy place. AEI is an academic organization based on the war of ideas around the common moral consensus of the American experiment, which is that opportunity should exist for everybody, and we have a moral obligation to push it to the people who need it the most. So for over the past 75 plus years, we've been dedicated to those principles with the highest standards of, uh, of, of research in service of expanding liberty, increasing individual opportunity, fighting for free enterprise and American leadership around the world. What a privilege to be the president of this place. I have 225 full-time colleagues at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., and I'm telling you, these people I work with, they're warriors. Uh, they just they, they want a better world. And, you know, we go into work every day and sometimes it's frustrating and sometimes it's politically tough. But I tell you, every day when we come home, we feel my colleagues and I feel like we've done something in, in service of our fellow man in ways that we wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. And particularly in favor of the people who need opportunity more than I do, more than my colleagues that I do at AEI. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful and a beautiful thing. Yeah, and it, to, to be part of an organization that's dedicated to busting down the barriers that hold people back. What an amazing thing. AEI.org? That's right. AEI.org. Basically, the promise that I have to all of our, to our millions and, and maybe billions of listeners <laughs> is, uh, is if you go to AEI.org and you do a little bit of reading and do it every day for a week, next time you go to a party, somebody's going to say, man, when did you get so smart? <laughs> well, we, we like to think the same thing about the uh, the Acton Institute website, Acton.org, but uh, right Absolutely. now we'll, fo- we'll focus on AEI. AEI for now. And uh, Arthur, the uh, the latest book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America, uh, a fantastic resource for anybody who's interested in that subtitle, Building a Fairer Society and a Happier Society. And uh, Arthur Brooks is the go-to guy for information on that, uh, for, for real research and uh, and the stories, too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, you know, I appreciate everybody who's subscribing to this podcast and listening to the great work that Acton Institute does. Uh, people have a tendency to think that, that you know, these big ideas come out of Washington, D.C. That's not true in the conservative movement. The conservative movement flows up not down. It's the best ideas in the United States are coming out of places like Grand Rapids, Michigan and great organizations like the Acton Institute. So I'd urge everybody, listen every week, go to the Acton website and donate to the Acton Institute because when you do that, you're really fighting for America. I I didn't say that. I'm just going to let you uh, listen to Arthur Brooks there because he's quite a bit smarter than me. Arthur, it's been a pleasure to have you here. uh, And I want to say, I want to make very clear, I'm very grateful for your presence here on Radio Free Acton. And I I wish you well in in the continued work that you're doing at AEI. We're going to keep following you, and we hope you keep following us. Thank you. We'll stay in the fight together. Well, with that, we bring our podcast to a close. And I want to offer, once again, a very sincere thanks to Arthur C. Brooks. Uh, He's a man with a very busy schedule. He's in demand, and you can see why. He's a guy who knows what he's talking about and a guy that people uh, want to hear from. And he took some time out of his schedule uh, while he was here at Acton to talk to me and and by extension to talk to you, and I, I deeply appreciate that. Arthur C. Brooks, of course, president of the American Enterprise Institute, another fine organization that you should check out if you haven't done so already, AEI. Org is the website. Uh, there are tons of resources available there. And, of course, uh, more writings by Arthur that you can, you can pick up. Uh, pick up his book as well. Uh, it's, uh, it's called, once again, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. You can pick it up at Amazon, other uh, online retailers, uh, or your local bookstore probably will have it as well. 
Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you again today. Thanks, uh, of course, to Arthur Brooks, and thanks to you for joining us on Radio Free Act and the podcast. Glad to be with you, and we hope you'll uh, share the podcast with others who might be interested. In the meantime, we will get to work on our next edition, and we will see you then on Radio Free Act. And have a great day, everybody. Music.